They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators don't make a breakthrough in that time, the chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 12, Conversations. One of the most enjoyable and intriguing aspects of a podcast that involves a live investigation is that you never really know at the end of the last podcast exactly what the next one is going to be about. Things I've learned take unexpected turns. Things crop up that I wasn't expecting. And this episode feels a little bit like part one of what will end up being two or three, a new little journey. Now, I'll tell you up front, there's no massive reveal at the end of this particular episode, but it does show how my investigation has been developing and where it's gonna develop to next. New lines of inquiry are emerging, and I'm sure some of those will yield very interesting results in the fullness of time. Finding people who were around at the end of the 60s who still have memories of that time still feels like a major breakthrough because somewhere in those memories, within that cast of characters that we've been developing over the last 11 episodes, is the key to the whole thing. And that cast of characters is getting bigger and bigger all the time. It all started couple of days after I released the last podcast, I was having a conversation with a couple of people who have been extraordinarily helpful along this journey. Firstly, Kim Macbeth. You may remember that when Zoe recognised the police mock-up of Fred at the end of the last episode, it was the hair, and specifically the hair colour, she commented on. Now, the image is the police's mock-up, but the colourisation of that image well that's Kim's work and she's done many of them for me and they're amazing she really brings those images to life and that can be the difference between somebody recognizing an image and not recognizing an image she also knows pretty much everything about Burton history so if there's anything I want to know about Windshill or Burton of around that time or even earlier she can answer it and she's answered a thousand questions for me over the last few months. So, Kim, a big thank you from me. The other person is David Adkins. Now, David will be quite well known, I think, to members of the Who Is Fred the Head Facebook group. He often posts there. And I spent many hours with him over the last few months throwing around different ideas about exactly what could have happened. The good thing about David is that he's an ideas machine. He is the perfect catalyst to get me thinking about different lines of inquiry. So we've talked about pretty much everything and many things that have never, ever got close to being on the podcast. We've talked a lot about people who worked at the mill. But then David asked me a very good question. A very, very good question. 
did David Nathan and Garth Hamp Gopsell have any employees? I didn't know. So I gave David Nathan a call. And it was good that I did. Because that conversation ended up opening some more doors. John Statham? Yeah. It ring, it's ringing a bell and I don't know why it's ringing a bell. John used to live in the mill house. The first one passed the mill on the left hand side at the drive. That's where John used to live. And he left there and I think he went to Swaddling Coat. Okay. John, I, I forget the number of the house. If you go past the pub, down the drive at the back, up the other side, this was the first house. Yeah. Tell me about John Statham then. Why, why does that name come up with you? He used to work at the mill. He used to work there for quite a long time. Okay. Is he still around, you know? I saw John about two years ago in the garden centre. And we were, we were talking about old times and the old body. He lives in swaddling coat now. Uh, last time I knew, he lived in swaddling coat. I do want it. But yeah, John Statham, that's, a, that's very useful. Thank you very much indeed for that. In fact, one of the things I wanted to ask you was in connection with that, because you know if you followed the podcast, you'll, you'll know that when the university did their thing on the school, they ran it through yeah, a... I saw that. That's interesting, isn't it? Well, Frank Kuhn, who I don't know if you know, but he was, he, he was Hungarian working at the mill. Now, we know it's not him. But he went to Australia at the end of 69. What I was going to ask is, did you know him? No. I knew very few people actually happened. Even the brother used to work there. Your brother? Michael, yeah. Michael Nathan, he used to work at the mill for a while. Okay. Um, I don't know anybody else's name who used to work there. Well, that's interesting. Well, John's useful, and I really appreciate that, because the more people I can talk to at the mill, because I am starting to think that the mill's got something to do with it. I do you? I know I shouldn't say that, but... Well, you can say it to me. I mean, it's too out of the way. Yeah, it is. It then is. He used, to, he used to take a handcart across the weir to clear it. Actually, over the weir itself? To clear it. They couldn't, take, they couldn't push the rubbish into the river. And they used to put all the rubbish off the weir in the handcart and take it back to the mill to destroy. If they didn't keep the top of the weir clean, the water... Would cause turbulence and it used to lift stones out the top of the road and yeah, destroy it. I don't know if you've heard Zoe in Australia, Zoe being Frank's daughter. Oh, yeah, I heard that, yeah. She's a character, by the way. <laughs> She's got an amazing memory. I think some of it's because obviously they left in 69 and she's got very vivid memories. And the beauty of that is I know if she's got a memory of there, it's got to be before end of 69. Obviously, we know where Garth was living. He was living in uh, in the house that was next to the workshop that you and Garth worked in. That's right, isn't it? It was underneath his bedroom was the actual shop. So it's all one big building. Did anyone else ever work there? The shop. Yeah. A girl used to work. My wife used to work there for a couple of years. Yeah. A girl called Lynn Smedley used to work there as manageress. Is Lynn still around? Yeah, she lives in Mughal. Well, I might have to find Lynn. 
no, only because I'm trying to find anybody that was around at the time. But there was you didn't have any apprentices or anything like that. It was just it was just you, Garth, Lynn, and your wife. Yeah. Well, that's good because that gives. What I'm trying to do is just make sure I've got everyone accounted for, really, and anyone who's around, still around, obviously, I'm I'm, I'm interested to talk to. Separate company, or were they people working at the mill? No, it was a separate company, nothing to do with the mill. They called them in. Argyle, that piece name was Argyle. Nice man, 70s, 60s, 70s now. What, he was in his 60s then, or, or he'd be in his 60s, 70s now? Now. Oh, okay, so he might still be around. I'm sure he was younger than we were, let's put it like that. That's brilliant information. If you can tra track down John Stanley, he'll know. I'll, I'm going to track down John Statham. How long were you and Garth, were you there years before? What was the years that you were working in that workshop? When did it start? When did it kind of finish? Oh, I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think when we started Town Consortium. Well, so we started Town Consortium when I was 21. I'm 75 now, so it's easy to work back. So that's uh, 54 years ago. sure now he was killed spring summer 69 if you were 21 presumably born in 47 so if you were if you started time consortium when you were 21 this is quite important to get this right actually were you born in 47 then six 46 january 46 so if you were 21 when you started it time consortium that takes it to 67 you were somewhere else for two years. Is that, is that right? I'm sure. As soon as my apprenticeship finished, we set up Town Consortium. And when you did, were you somewhere else for a couple of years before you went to Newton Road? Yes, we went to, we set up in Station Street above J.B. Possum Jewellers. And how long were you at Station Street for? Probably a couple of years. Well, that brings you to 69. There's a really good chance that body was already buried when you moved in. I've never, never done a, this kind of calculation. Can't it, dispute it. Is that when Garth bought that house then, or was Garth living there before? The house belonged to his parents. Okay. And so um, many, many years ago, they, they lived there. Many, many years. It wasn't where Time Consortium was working from until 69, when you, you converted it to a little shop and a workshop, presumably. Shop, yeah. You might not even been there exactly at the same time, yeah? Exactly at the right time. As always, food for thought. I've got some homework to do now with John Statham and Mr. Argyle. I'm sure his name is Mike Argyle. Wow. Well, that's remarkable. Remarkable memory. 
Mike Argyle. So John Statham oh, well, yeah. and Mike Argyle. Welding, building, anything. Where was he based, you know? Can't remember, no. He'd be local, wouldn't he? Bound to be local. Probably fairly local, yeah. Yeah. David, thank you for that. I'm always much obliged to you. So, some interesting names there to try and track down. I started with John Statham and Mike Argyle, people who had worked in and around the mill around the end of the 60s. One of the main strategies in this investigation is to try and talk to as many people who were around at the time of the murder and discovery. Now, obviously, with it being 50 years ago, the number of people who are still around who are old enough to remember any of the key details, well, that's small. And sadly, it's gonna be getting smaller every year. That is why we need to do it now. It's probably our very last chance to solve this, to identify who Fred is at last. Armed with these new names, John Statham and Mike Argyle, I posted on a Burton-on-Trent History Facebook page run by Kim Macbeth, who we mentioned earlier. I put on there a post asking whether anyone knew them. Now, sadly, I think one of the replies I got suggested that John Statham, who had worked at the mill, may have passed away now, a few years ago. And I didn't get anything back on Mike Argyle either. And that's disappointing because he was working on the island, but maybe not surprising because he may not even been a particularly local person. But then I had an idea. Do you remember Phil Smith? He was the accountant at Greensmith's Mill who I'd spoken to about Frank Cunn. Remember, he said that Frank had left pretty much out of the blue when it happened. I called him and I asked him if he happened to remember anyone from around the time called Mike Argyle, who didn't work at the mill, but did repair work on behalf of the mill. Turns out he did. And turns out, miraculously, he even had his phone number. He lives in Leicestershire. 15 miles away from Burton, he's never seen any of the press coverage about the case. Phil very kindly offered to set the call up and explain why I needed to speak to him, just so it wouldn't really come as too much of a shock. So I ended up having a very interesting conversation with Mike Argyle. Hello. Hello, is that Mike? Hello Mike, my name's Ken Davis. I think Phil Smith might have mentioned I've been trying to find you. He did, yeah. I, I worked, worked there for 20 odd years, I think, on and off. Did you? I was never employed by them. In terms of they used to bring you in to do repairs and... Yes, I was, yes, I was a contractor, yes. I see. Did Phil mention why I was keen to talk to you? He did, yes. Yeah, good. Because uh, it is odd, but obviously I've been working on this trying to find out what happened to this poor chap that was found in 1971 i've been working on this for two years now yeah it was 71 wasn't it he was found in 71 he would have been killed earlier than that he would have been killed probably 69 or very early 1970. you used to work on the bridge is this the bridge that was next door to garth hamcopsel and david nathan's workshop it is yes i know the it way. was so what work were you doing there then, just kind of maintaining that bridge? We were working on the weir. Uh, the weir ran alongside, opposite side to Gopsall. And 
on the bank, right by the river. Very near there, the end of, that was the end of the weir. Yes. Which ran towards the mill. And we were getting towards the end of, started the mill end and worked our way along. It was quite a long way to do this job. Mm-hmm. We, we dropped the gravel and dropped it down onto a boat and took it to the middle of the weir and concrete mixer on there and worked that. And we were getting towards the end on the island side, on the far side. Mm-hmm. And we sat in there and this was sort of like a workman's hut and it was broken a bit. Mm-hmm. And we, we sat in there just on a board eating the sandwiches. Where was this hut then? Uh, well, it, it floated down the river. It oh. come on, come on to the weir. Okay, oh, blimey! And it was just within a few yards of this kiln where this boat camp was. Yes, that's right. So, when what years are we talking here? Any idea the kind of date of of when you would have been working there? I don't know. Was it before the discovery of the body or after? Do you think? It was before. Okay, so we know it was before seventy one. And was he was he asking you about the site and did they say anything? Carl? Yeah. I had to go to coroner's court. Did you? Yes, in Burton, and and give evidence just to say that I hadn't seen anything. You know, we hadn't. I asked Granville, who was working with me, mm-hmm. and we hadn't seen anything. So you were obviously working on the weir to kind yeah. of make sure the weir was maintained, because obviously the weir was important to the how the mill worked. Did you work? in the mill as well or was it just on that piece that one project no no i worked in the mill as well okay i, I worked on the water turbines all over do you remember a fella called frank Kun? i do hungarian fella black hair yeah stocky i do he didn't work there long did he well he did but he left at the end of 69 right so you might have only known him for a relatively short period there what, what, what do you remember of him? He was foreign, wasn't he? He was Hungarian, yeah. Yes, that's right. He was quite a nice chap. There's a very good chance the body was Hungarian. Really? But it isn't Frank. Oh, right. Because yeah. Frank Frank ends up in Australia in the end of 1969. Yeah, he was a nice fellow. I quite liked him. He knew his stuff, by all accounts. He wasn't a rollerman. He was a salesman. Rollerman ran the ship. Salesman were second in command. I think he was a roller man. Only what from what, what Peter Marsden told me. Yes. He was I think he was quite quite senior. In fact he lived in one of the houses there. Did he? Next to oh, the mill. No that I think he was quite a bulky fellow, he was sort of fairly well built. He was. Were the rumours was anything being suggested just in terms of well I think I know what happened there. No, I didn't I didn't hear anything like that. Occasionally over the twenty years a body had to get washed up on the weir. Mm. And I never saw any of those. Have you ever seen the photo fit that the police did of the fella? No. Well, would you mind if I sent it to you? No, no, of course. Because you might look at it and think, bloody hell, that's so-and-so. Well, you never know, do you? You never know. I the- can remember going to the, the coroner's court <laughs> If it were yet, uh, only yesterday. 
Um, did anyone say anything as a witness that you thought, ah, right? The, no, the, they didn't actually. It was absolutely sort of dead, you know. Yeah. No one had any idea? No, they didn't seem to know. Was everyone who we was working there kind of local English what I'm really asking obviously I know Frank was from Hungary was there any anyone else there that was kind of Eastern European or Central European anything like that there was a chap who could speak Dutch and Dutch is not an easy language is it no and he, and he therefore he's, he wouldn't have been English he wasn't Dutch he was uh, I think was English you think he was English but he could speak Dutch yes and he was good at it but there was no no one else working there that was Eastern European or... I can't think of anybody, but I'll give it some thought. Yeah, do so. Just one just one thing that's occurred to me. You know you were working on the bridge? Yeah. There's only two ways on where that body can get on there. Either over the bridge or through Bass's Meadow, which is the yeah. big bit behind it. Or across the weir. Or a boat, have you thought of that? The weir. How easy was it to walk across the weir? You could walk across the weir from the mill yes. pretty easily unless it was in full flood. Yes, if it was fairly you know, dry weather, you could walk across easily, put it that way. Well, that's really interesting because I'd never really considered the weir as a way on. Now, what, one thing you just mentioned uh, that I wanted to come back to, you, you said they could have used a boat because obviously someone took a body there who probably knew that area because yes. no one no one's going to find that are they that didn't know it already in fact no one buries a body in the place they don't know they always bury bodies where they know well yes they'd have to know wouldn't they oh yeah 100 percent. not obvious you mentioned boat i mean what, what makes you say that no one's ever said to me oh you know it could have gone could have been got there by boat i mean it was quite close yes. to the river but was any other reason that you mentioned that But an odd thing's happened. Yes, but you see, the the currents coming towards the middle, so it wouldn't be, a, wouldn't be too difficult, would it? You wouldn't have to paddle against the current. When was this? Was this before or after the body? After. The, the tide, you know, the, the flow is coming in your favour, and so you drift down quite easily, wouldn't you? You'd drift down from Burton to you, naturally, wouldn't you? It'd be easier if you were carrying a body from Burton. Drift down, won't you? So, what does that conversation tell us? What can we learn from that chat with Mike? The most obvious one is clearly there may have been other methods of getting the body to the deposition site. There was over the weir. Now, a couple of people have asked me who are not in the UK, what is a weir? Well, it's a kind of a low stone barrier that's just beneath the water line across a river, which controls the flow of water, particularly when that flow of water is important to a mill or something like that. And the weir in this case had water flowing over it, but in the drier periods where the water level falls and the trend falls and rises quite a lot in that area, 
In the drier periods it can be walked across, but it's a hazardous journey still, but definitely possible. And the other thing that Mike mentioned was by boat. And it's strange that soon after that people were coming along from Burton downstream opportunistically stealing tools from him and drifting down from Burton in a boat is relatively easy depending on the flow of water it might not be that easy to get back upstream but certainly coming that way definitely possible so now the ways in which the body may have reached its deposition site if it wasn't killed there have just increased we've got the bridge we've got coming around through Bass's Meadow we've now got coming across the weir and now maybe by boat now i haven't forgotten in the background to all this zoe kun in australia thinks she recognizes the picture that i sent her i've left her to think about it and maybe to look through some of her father's old photographs when she had the chance now i have to confess I'm a fairly impatient person, so waiting for a response like that from Zoe was driving me a little bit mad. But I also knew that she was right in the middle of this big house move, and my obsession with Fred, quite rightly, might not be top of her priority list. But by the end of last week, I could resist the temptation to phone her no more. And as always with a Zoe call, it also yielded an interesting nugget or two. By the way, Zoe has never heard the podcast, and I shudder to think what she's going to make of it. One other interesting thing. I mentioned to her a man called Matthew James Jackson, and this is a name that is starting to intrigue me. I have no idea whether he's involved at all. But he was reported as going missing in 1971, a couple of weeks after the bodies found and that was reported in the Burton Mail. He just happened to live at 126 Newton Road. That's Zoe's old house. So after the Kun family left 126 Newton Road, Matthew James Jackson must have moved in. I just wanted to know whether Zoe knew that name. I'm very well, Zoe. How are you? Oh, a lot more rested than I was this time yesterday. Last email you sent to me about the photograph sounded encouraging. Sounded like you uh, recognised yeah, the picture. I haven't got any further with it. Um, I'm, I, I still have the picture in my mind's eye. And I still can't place where I know it from. But I'm sure I've seen that face before. What was it about it that made you think, hmm, that rings a bell? I don't know. Um... The arrangement of features is the only thing I can think of. I mean, it definitely looks Eastern European. Estonian is what I'm thinking, and I don't know why. Well, I've got four things written down to say, got to speak to Zoe about this. Number four is Estonian, because I remember you mentioning that guy way back, but I've not got any idea who the Estonian person was. Was he, was well, he, was he from Derby? I think he might have even worked at the mill, briefly. And yes, I think he came from Derby. When you said that, that just that it just felt right. You know how sometimes when when something just fits, thought yeah, okay, that that actually feels right. There's a there's a a body shift that comes with that, so that feels like it's right information. Okay. Sometimes that's the only way you can really 
you know, get your subconscious working is to suggest something to it and if you can feel that it feels right then often it is well that's an interesting point that zoe i mean you i think you're probably more tuned into that kind of stuff than me the case of your subconscious mind doing pattern matching Okay, that's interesting. Coming back to Estonian, so when I said Derby in Estonian, you got a little bit of... Uh... Yeah, yeah, um, I, I just, something something in the, in the middle of the small of my back just sort of went, oh, yeah, okay, and unknotted itself. Okay, interesting. So, the difficulty I've got, whereas Hungarian surnames are quite unique to Hungary, and therefore I've been able to track down pretty much every Hungarian in Derby, the Estonians are, are much more difficult to, to, to identify. But you've, you've got a feeling there may be, may be a connection between that photograph and the Estonian person. Well, certainly would might explain the lighter hair. Yes, yes. But it, yeah, it, it's just, when I, when I saw Sophie's photograph, I just thought, yeah, okay. And since then, to be honest, I don't even know where Estonia is. Okay, you know that there are three countries vertically arranged right on the east of of europe north europe just before you get to russia so they're not very far from places like st petersburg yeah i think i think it had, had to be over, over sort of there because i know that the estonians have a lot of trouble with the russians correct and and they have in fact these so these three countries run vertically in the baltic and one's for top one's estonia second one i think is latvia and the third one is lithuania Right. No dad knew people from all those places. I believe he must have travelled through there at some point. Certainly when you were saying last time that, that he'd travelled up towards Norway and Sweden, places like that, it's though yeah. it's very much the northeast Baltic, Finland, Estonia, yes. Latvia. I, I think what happened was he, he ended up getting dumped in Norway and he had to come back down, down through somewhere else. Because I, I have an idea that from Norway he went overland, but somehow avoided Russia. Now I don't know how you do that. The problem, of course, is Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania were were Eastern Bloc. They were communist then. Russia had taken them over. Yes, yes. That, it could be that the, the, that particular part of your journey was earlier on. If I ever manage to to organise these photographs, I think I'll probably get a better timeline because some of the photographs. You can see things like cars or yeah. buildings that might not be there anymore or whatever, and so you can sometimes date them. That Estonian man, did he ever come to the house? He did, didn't he? I don't think he mentioned, you mentioned he mentioned he... I believe so. That's why I'm thinking he was actually working at the mill, perhaps one of the casual workers over on the far side. Sometimes there was extra work went on, presumably around harvest season, and they used to get extra workers in. Okay, that's interesting. Um, and... A lot of what they were doing was over in the in the far end of the mill, um, not where all the machinery was. Although there's, there's machinery in that area, there was machinery in that area as well. But there was other stuff going on there. And that was what just loading and unloading. Presumably, it would be wheat, wasn't it? And things like that. Different different well, yeah, grains. Well, they didn't just do wheat, as far as I know. They yeah. they also um, cut up maize and various other things as well. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Okay, interesting. And that was taking place a little bit away from the normal part of the mill. And and when that process was in place, sometimes there were some casual workers on site. Yes. Okay. Yeah, uh, more or less unskilled labourers. But yeah. you, you tended to get the same people back every year. Yeah. 
That's interesting. So, so we reckon this Estonian may have come from Derby, might be the best match at the moment for that photograph. So I really need to start looking in Estonia or, or the Estonian community in Derby, don't I? The other name that, that I just wanted to run past you, but first I'll, I'll just a quick little question. What was the number of, on Newton Road you lived at? Was it 124 or 126? 126. Yeah, I think 124 was the whole sticks. 126. After you left 126, someone called Matthew Jackson lived in it. What's slightly odd about that is that straight after the body was found in 1971, Matthew Jackson went missing. We don't think Matthew Jackson is really? the... Yeah. Don't think Matthew Jackson is the... Well, he's not the body, but he went missing. And there's a piece in the... I found a piece in the Burton Mail of that time saying, has anyone seen this man? And he lives at 126 Newton Road. Obviously, that my antennae started to twitch. But I just wondered if you ever... Have you found any more out about this fellow? Not yet. I wanted to... This is why I want one of the things I want to speak to you first. I wanted just to see if you... If that name rang any bells, was he someone who was at the... Because presumably if he was living in 126 Newton Road, he must have had something to do with the mill. Which possibly indicates that if he was working at the mill, that he was on Mr Bannister's shift and not my dad's. That's a very good point, of course, isn't it? Yeah, there were two shifts. Yeah, there were two, two, two separate shifts and we basically never saw the people on the other one because our, our family was in sleep cycle when they were in work cycle and vice versa. No, that makes perfect sense. And the chances are, if he moved into that house, that he was one of the foremen rather than one of the workers. Yeah, and his house was classified as a, as, a, as a privilege, basically. Yes, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, and look into the person that moved into our house after us. I will. I have a very vague memory. I was talking to a girl called Helen Jowett. That would have been, I don't know, 71, 72, maybe. I used to very, very occasionally when I was feeling rich and, and completely homesick for England, I used to ring one of the people that I went to school with. Okay. And I remember her telling me that there was a creepy guy who moved into our old house. This might be the creepy guy. Okay. That, that's, that's just a, 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 a you know, way out in left field, but it's a possibility. Now, Helen Jowett... Because I've got to tell you, I've got to tell you that, that house would be a perfect place if you were, if you were trying to, you know, do creepy things around the place, especially on weekends when the mill was closed. It'd be a great place to live so that you could keep an eye on everything and, and do whatever you liked. So that call with Zoe gave me two more leads. I needed to find Helen Jowett, Zoe's school friend from 1969, and I needed to make contact with the Estonian community in and around the East Midlands. Happily, I was able to do both and there will be more on both of those leads in the next podcast. A couple of days ago, I noticed that Staffordshire Police had uploaded a podcast about Fred. Although I only noticed it last week, it's actually from the 27th of March. It features DS Dan Eisen, who is the detective leading the investigation, talking about the case. It's part of a podcast series called The Beat, which they publish, and I've put a link to it on the Facebook page. Essentially, it's what was covered in the Crime Watch episode on the 50th anniversary of his discovery. And it's interesting, obviously, but it does repeat some inaccuracies that have kind of become part of this case. And I find that a little bit annoying, really. 
In the first minute, he mentions that Fred the Head was found by a dog walker. Well, he wasn't found by a dog walker. We know for certain that that wasn't the case, and I don't know why it keeps getting repeated. He also mentions that the pathologist said he'd been in the ground between 9 and 12 months. In fact, he said between 9 and 18 months. That could make all the difference. He also seems to think that dental work of the type that Fred had may have been performed in a pub. Well, it wasn't. It was excellent quality dental work. And I remember 1970. Dental treatment was freely available in the UK on the NHS. It's, in fact, much better than today. It was 1970, not 1870. So I did finish that podcast with a sense that the Staffordshire police are kind of simply waiting for a call to tell them what happened. And that's not coming. That's never coming. That's understandable in a way, though, because Staffordshire police have got limited resources and loads of current crimes to solve. This is 50 years ago. And I do send them regular updates about the podcast, and I've asked for an interview with DS Eisen, but so far he's not been available. But I'll keep pushing on that. But honestly, I'm not getting the impression there's a lot of actual investigation taking place. Talking about the police investigation, remember that post I put on Facebook asking for information about John Statham and Mike Argyle? Well, that did prove very useful and it yielded a third and very interesting lead. I was contacted by a lady called Ange Billings, and she said, do you mind if I share this with my brother in Australia? Because he was the policeman shown digging Fred up in the photographs, and he's been following things closely ever since. Well, as you can imagine, it took me about three seconds to get back to Ange, and we're currently in the process of trying to set that interview up. At last, it seems, I'm about to talk to someone who was involved in the police investigation from the very day that Fred was found. So, hopefully, our next podcast will feature that interview. And I can't wait. But until next time, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSE Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis. <laughs>